We are in our series called Unfinished, and we've been going through here through the past uh, few weeks, and today we're entering to a pretty crazy text. I mean, this, this text is pretty nuts. When you get into it, just the, what's going on here, when we get into it, some crazy stuff that's going on. Matter of fact, it's, it should cause you to step up and go, you know, wake up. There, there are certain things that happen in our life that, that really can scare you to make a change. For example, when I was in high school, I remember going to an assembly. Um, and uh, at my high school, we had assemblies, I don't know, every few, something like every few weeks. And we'd have a different speaker, uh, a speaker to encourage us or challenge us. And sometimes the speaker was there to warn us. And this one man got up, and he looked like he was in his late 20s. I mean, I was a teenager, so it was hard to kind of gauge. And he, he began to share his story, that when he was in his early 20s, he decided to go out with his buddies one night, and they were just having a good time, relaxing. They were drinking, uh, and they were, they were getting pretty lit. I mean, it was, it, it, it was just guys being guys, right? It was what we'd say in our society, guys having a great time. And he makes a mistake, though, of getting behind the wheel, he gets behind the wheel, and he's, he's drunk. He loses control of the car, and he ends up crashing into a uh, 25-year-old woman who was pregnant and her toddler and killed them all. And he just talked about the dangers of doing this action. And here he was talking about it, his tears in his eyes, realizing that he had taken three lives because he was so stupid, foolish, and so there are certain things and situations that when we encounter someone who lived it, it wakes us up and it scares us straight. And here we have a passage that is meant to scare believers in Jesus straight. Because the reason is, is we have this tendency to tame God. We neuter God. We like to think of God as God, to be this benevolent person in our lives that's always there for us in our time of need. But we fail to remember that God is holy. He's a God of wrath He's a God of love. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a long-suffering God. But he's a God that also must punish sin. And he especially disciplines those who bear his name. Not in a, in a dictatorial or this hard, evil manner, but it, as a loving father. Because he grieves when his children are choosing that which his son to die, died to put away. We forget how bad sin really is. And here's a passage that we're going to look at today as we examine this church in its infancy. But we're going to see some examples, one great and one really bad, that is meant to warn us and made us, make us look in our own hearts and minds to see if we might be guilty of something similar. That maybe we've approached God and sought to use God as a means of status or as a means of honor all the while trying to hide the real thoughts and intentions of our heart. So I invite you today to open up, I mean, we should all open up our hearts wide to receive this truth that we might go forth changed, truly delighting and finding joy in the one who made us and fashioned us for himself. So before we go any further, let's ask God by his spirit to speak to us as we open his word together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence once again as your people. Broken, scarred, at times double-minded, at times hypocritical, 
carrying off in the guilt of our sins, not living in the victory that your cross and your resurrection has given unto us, failing to take your word seriously and failing to take our calling as Christians into the furthest recesses of our lives that we might go forth walking worthy of the calling we have received. So Lord, we lay ourselves out before you right now. And we ask that you speak to us by your word. May your spirit be evident. May you be working in the hearts and minds of everyone here. Believer and unbeliever alike. Lord, if there is a person who is investigating who you are, I pray that you convict them by your spirit. That they might see the great God who loves them with an everlasting love. And for those who bear your name, I pray, Lord, that you might bring conviction to our hearts, that we might repent of our sin and turn unto you and embrace the freedom and peace that the cross and resurrection has given unto us. So be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we jump right in to our text for today. So we start off in verse 32. I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, or to, to listen in best that you can, but if you do, to follow along as we go through this pretty amazing text. And we've been going through this church uh, for the past several weeks, examining it. And we saw that this is a brand new church. I mean, this is a, a church plant, the first church plant. And this church grew rapidly. We saw the church started off with 3,000 after Peter's sermon on Pentecost. We saw that it would continue to grow after Peter and John testified to the temp- at the temple after a lame man who had been born lame had been healed. So now the church numbers about 5,000 people. They're meeting in different houses. They're meeting in the temple courts. They are praying together. They're eating together. They're sharing this new life that they have in Christ together. And so we, we, we realized, though, that not everyone loved what was going on in this early church, that the leaders, was, for them, it was a threat to their honor, a threat to their power, a threat to their, their prestige and acclaim in the community, and that after Peter and John had preached, the, they sent the authorities to arrest them, they're taken, they're then they're questioned in front of the religious council, the same one that agreed to kill Jesus. And then they, after that, they were threatened, but they went forth and they went back to the church and told them about what had occurred. And then they turned to God in prayer and asked God, basically, and God just shook them. He really shook the whole place, showing that he was going to answer them. He was going to keep working. He was going to keep stretching forth his hand, healing, transforming hearts, and transforming minds. And now we pick up in this next episode of what's going on in this church as they continue to testify by the Spirit, speaking the word of God with boldness. And so we pick it up in verse 32. So now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, before we go any further in this, I want us to see that this is a snapshot of believers in community. This is a snapshot of a church in its infancy. So some like to take the book of Acts and just put it in front of everybody saying, this is how the church is to be for all time. That's not the case. These guys are learning on the fly as it were. They haven't received the entirety of the New Testament yet. Paul, through his letters, begins to address different issues that come up through the life of the church as it happens. 
and showing them and teaching them how they are to live. So we have to make sure that while we look at this church, we want to make sure that we, we don't come there with rose-colored glasses on, which is an expression we, we use to say that not everything is perfect in this church. It might seem that way, but there are going to be problems. As long as you deal with people, there are going to be problems. There's going to be conflicts. There's going to be issues. There's going to be problems in the home. There's going to be problems in the workplace. So we, we have to set that and understand that as we enter in to understand this church. So it's a church in its infancy, emphasis, excuse me, infancy. However, as we delve within this, we're going to see that there are certain principles that we can pull from that that we can emulate in our time. So we, we have to understand that as we jump in. Now we see that the full number of those who believed were of one heart. Remember, this is 5,000 people we're talking about here. 5,000 people were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. Had all things in common. Now you can't have something in common or know about another's life if you don't know who they are. What that means is, is that you have to be together. And here it's showing us that we are to get together frequently. As God's people, we are to be together frequently so much that we get to know one another. Now let me ask you this. If this is your church home and you're here regularly, do you know a lot about the person sitting next to you? Do you know about their family? Do you know about their story? Do you know how they came to know Jesus? Do you know about their, their, what, what God has done in their life? Do you know about where they live and, and what they enjoy doing and, and what teams they root for? I mean, what are the things that you get to know about a person? And I find that we are all what I call religious spiritual silos. We come in for the church for a little bit, but no one can penetrate the silo, and we go out and still live in our silos and never interact with one another. And God is calling us to be together. And that can be awkward, and for some, that awkward is definitely not awesome. Because it's messy. Life is messy. You deal with personalities and you deal with hookups and habits and you deal with their issues and, and, and misunderstandings and communication. All these things come together, but that's what they were doing. Why were they doing that? It's because they understood what was at stake. See, it's interesting. It says that they were of one heart and one soul. They were unified. This is incredible to think about. 5,000 people are unified. Now, let me ask you this. When's the last time that 5,000 people were unified about anything? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was a British pastor in the 19th century, amazing pastor. He said that the ideal meeting to attend uh, consisted of three people and two don't show up. The idea is is that no one's going to get along with one another. People are going to have a hard time. They're going to disagree with one another. But these guys were in unity together, of one heart, meaning that their, their heart beat for one another. They hurt for one another. They were there for one another. And one soul, they were thinking the same things. They had the same common lives, the common goal, common mission. And what's that mean for us is that we are to grow in unity. Grow in unity to be together. Now, why were, they be, why were they able to have, be so unified? Because the, the obstacle that they faced required unity for them to overcome it. Here's what I mean by that. Many of you here in the United States have grown up in, uh, if, you're, if you're over 40, let's say, you've grown up in an environment where there were so many different Christian denominations, Right? Some of you understood that. So you, this joke would make sense to you, right? There's this story about a guy who was getting ready to jump off a bridge. And he's getting ready to jump off a bridge when a guy comes up to him. And he says, hey, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. 
He goes, why not? He goes, there's so much to live for. And he goes, like what? He goes, well, are you religious? The guy goes, yeah. He goes, well, what are you? Are you Christian? Are you Buddhist? Are you Muslim? Are you Hindu? And he goes, I'm Christian. And the guy goes, so am I. Are you Orthodox? Are you Roman Catholic? Are you Coptic? Are you Armenian? What are you? Are you Protestant? He goes, I'm Protestant. The guy goes, so am I. He goes, are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Church of Christ? Are you, he goes, I'm Baptist. The guy goes, so am I. Are you Roman Road Baptist? Northern Baptist? Southern Baptist? Free Will Baptist? What Baptist? He goes, I'm Northern Baptist. The guy goes, so am I. Are you Northern Baptist Synod 1855 or Northern Baptist Synod 1874? And the guy goes, I'm Northern Baptist Synod 1874, and I went, die, heretic scum, and I pushed him off the bridge. It's a joke, pawn people. It's a joke. Now, the point is, the point of the joke is to say that there are so many differences within Christianity, and many of you grew up in an environment where Christianity was the majority, and you were known more of your differences than you were known in your similarities. However, the world in the United States has shifted. And now you have a lot of different religions. As a matter of fact, you have a lot of people that are just unbelievers. And so the, the differences we had before, that become much more minimal when you're facing a monumental task in front of you that forces you to unite. When I think that there are 1.2 billion Muslims in the world, 700 million Hindus, and 86% of that group has, doesn't even know one single Christian, then I'm going to unite with my brothers because we have a mission. We have a task in front of us that is gargantuan. To make his name known to the furthest recesses of the earth requires us to put aside our differences and lock arms because we have to be unified and it's through our unity that the world might know who Jesus is. As Jesus said in John 17, 21, I pray that they, may be, we are, they might be one as we are one so that the world may know that you sent me. So there's a unity that we are to work for and that's why, by the way, we have endeavored in this experiment of being a multi-ethnic church. Because we believe that this is one of the greatest examples of the truth and the reality of the gospel as we come from all of our different backgrounds, locking arms, saying the differences that we have are minuscule according to the common life we have in Christ. We have the same mission in front of us, so we're going to lock arms to show our unity with one another that the world might know who Jesus is. And that's what we are committing to that. And we want to see our leadership become diverse. Our worship be diversified. We want to see the songs, the genres, the, the communications we have. We want to see that be become diverse as, and become representative of our community. That's what we want. This is what we shared yesterday in our volunteer meeting. We want to see our church be a real reflection of heaven. And we have to grow in that unity. That doesn't come easy you got to work at it. And they worked at it because they understood the mission that they had in front of them. And we have to grow in our unity together. We have to understand that. And notice what they did, though. They came together. They had all things in common. And that uh, all the, any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They didn't view it as their own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And this is a very important point in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Why? Because people were giving generously. See, that's a characteristic of this community that we are to emulate is we have to give generously. You give generously it means our time, it means listening to another person. I mean, right now, one of the most valuable commodities we have in our culture today is time. To listen to someone to talk means also giving of our talents, serving. 
It also means giving of our treasures, our finances. And we need to make sure that we are growing and giving generously as a church. Not a needy person among them. It reminds me of the story when I first came here. We had been going through a very difficult time uh, in our lives, and especially financially. And even uh, we were staying with some friends in Chicago, and I drove out here to preach. And even driving out here, we didn't have enough money to fill the tank. I don't know if you've ever been there before. You want to know if you have enough money just to get the tank filled? And so I came out here, preached a sermon, just depending on the Lord, going, okay, you're going to supply. When a guy who was the teaching pastor at the time, he was listening, he walked up to me and handed me $200. He had no idea. I didn't tell him. But God spoke to him, and that helped me have more funds. And, and I came back, and we were interacting, getting the churches, we were getting to know one another. And, and I remember interacting and getting done with a meeting, and we were facing a financial need. And Tim Bidall, who's the teaching pastor at the Sugar Grove campus, looks at me, and he, he could see that something was wrong. And he goes, come with me. And we get in the car together, and he goes, you know what? I've got my wife's debit card. Let's do some damage. <laughs> and he was joking around, but he went and he took out $200. And he helped us. He was giving generously. Now, if you've ever been blessed like that, you want to give back. Are you giving generously? Generously. And I mean generously is not necessarily 200 bucks. Some of you are like, 200 bucks? That's a lot of money. Others are like, wow, I could, 200 bucks is nothing. It's not about the amount. It's never been about the amount. Hear me. It's never been about the amount. It's about the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what God wants to care enough to give and to give generously. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Now, I want to look at something else. Look at verse 36. It says, thus Joseph. So we see the the snapshot of this church. Now we're going to get a sample of what generosity looks like. There's a sample of generosity. So we saw the church is generous, but now we're going to get a sample of what it really looks like. Because some might say, what does generosity look like? And here we have this tangible example in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, apostles Barnabas. So it means that they got to know this guy well enough that they gave him a nickname. Because <laughs> this guy was an encourager. He's encouraging everybody. So they give him this nickname because he's encouraging everybody. And we learn that this guy is a Levite, a native of Cyprus. A sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have this sample of generosity. Now, in order to understand this sample of generosity, we need to understand a little bit more who Barnabas is. He's a Levite, which means he was from the priestly tribe of Israel that took care of the temple. Now, we learned that he was also a native of Cyprus, which was an island nation. Um, And so he was a Levite, meaning that he probably wanted to move to Jerusalem to be closer to the temple. We don't know exactly what happened, but he comes there to stay and live. And we learned that he had some property. Now, we're not sure why he had property, because Levites were actually banned according to part of the Old Testament. They weren't allowed to owe property. But some scholars believe that it wasn't being observed at this time. So he could have had property. He could have had it in Cyprus. He could have had it in Jerusalem. Or it could have been his burial plot which means he's selling the land. I mean, this is a great sacrifice to him. Now, he could have been wealthy. He could have been poor. We don't know. They don't tell us because he wants to make it available for everyone to be able to do and follow this example, poor or wealthy alike. But he is giving. And he takes the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, this seems a little bit strange for us. I've yet to have someone come up and drop their offering at my feet. Okay, uh, and I, but I saw a picture of this. I worked with, uh, my, my mentor was the first white man ever to be trained to be an Indian Native American uh, medicine man. And then he got saved. 
And so his heart goal was to reach Native Americans across the United States and all their different reservations. And he would go. And he, he borrowed many of the different um, the ways of living. He, he's the, he really thought and lived like someone who was a Native American. And his, uh, he died last year, went home to be with Jesus. And it was interesting, at his memorial service, some people like to give financial gifts as a remembrance of the person's life. And so he, they had two ways of giving. Those who were growing up in Western churches or, or American uh, Anglo white churches that were used to coming up and giving it in an offering box, they had that. But then in the back of the sanctuary, they had this blanket spread down. And in a Native American culture, they would come in and they would drop their tithes and offerings on the blanket in front of everybody. That'd be interesting to try that here. But they did. They just took their offerings and they laid it at the blanket. And that's kind of the same equivalent. Laid at the apostles' feet, they're just giving their offering. It's like putting the offering box according to their culture. So that the apostles would take it and they would distribute it to help those, uh, those who were in need. Now, As I mentioned before, he'd been a Levite. That's a detail that Luke makes sure to include for us. Because remember, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. This is his second volume. First one was about Jesus' life, and the second one is about the Holy Spirit working in the early church. Now, for a Levite to come to Christ was not an easy thing. It had tremendous social repercussions. But he did it because we can only give when it comes from a changed heart. See, his heart had been changed. This was a guy who had experienced the very grace of God and now wanted to give back to see what God would do with it. His life had been changed and he was showing that tangibly through his finances, which is a pretty amazing thing to do. And we see in verse 33, and it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all, meaning that hearts were being changed, lives were being transformed. They were giving to one another because God's power had been revealed in their lives and was poured out in their hearts. And that's what we see throughout scripture. Something those who haven't truly experienced it can can understand. See, that's what happened when one woman came and anointed Jesus' feet with oil when he was a guest of a Pharisee. So again, Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. They're trying to do community. This Pharisee's trying to figure out who Jesus is to get to know him. And Jesus is there, he's eating, when this woman comes in, who normally wouldn't, first of all, she's a woman, coming into a Pharisee's house. The Pharisee was a great religious teacher. This woman had a reputation in the community, if you know what I'm saying. Okay? She'd been around. And so she comes in, and she's broken, uh, and she brings this alabaster jar of ointment. And it's really costly. I mean, my wife's in essential oils. This stuff ain't cheap. Okay? It's not. There's some really expensive stuff out there. And she comes, and she's so overwhelmed. She breaks it and pours it on her feet and takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet, which is a symbol of her beauty, a symbol of her identity, a symbol of her authority, and she's wiping his feet, something that a servant was supposed to do. I mean, this is an amazing act of transformation. And the Pharisee's sitting off to the sideline, and he's thinking this in his heart. If this guy really was a prophet, he'd know who this woman is, and he wouldn't allow her to even touch him. And Jesus perceives it. And he says, he goes, I have a little quick question for you. He says, I want you to imagine a scenario here for a moment, that there was a guy, two guys. They were both dealing with a moneylender. They both took out huge loans. One of them, though, was for a million bucks. The other guy was for 50 bucks. And the moneylender decides to forgive them. Who's going to appreciate the debt more? The one who had 50 or the one a million? And the guy goes, I suppose the million. And he goes, that's why this woman is wiping her 
her, using her hair to wipe my feet because she's been forgiven much and those who are forgiven much love much. Now let me ask you this. How much have you been forgiven? Be honest. How much have you been forgiven? What have you done in your life? Or maybe, what has been done to you? This heart had been changed, and his gift was an overflow of the heart. Now, whenever we do offer a gift, when our hearts overflow in such a way, we have to understand that it comes with often a personal, great personal cost. If we're going to be generous, it's going to cost something. See, it cost Barnabas to give. Giving up a field, it's not like they had a surplus of fields sitting around. He may have been wealthy or he may have been poor. The text doesn't say, but he gave. And he was giving even though it meant a lot of loss of social capital. What I mean by that is this. Again, he's a Levite. So his family members, he's going to quite possibly be ostracized from the greater community. See, when a Jew often would come to faith in Christ, this is actually very recent. The last several hundred, I mean, years, a hundred years, century, it goes even back further than that, is that if someone converted to Christianity from Judaism, the family would often have a mock funeral and bury a casket symbolizing the person had died to them. So they were a complete outcast. Now, for those of us who have grown up in Christian environments, we don't get the social capital of what people have to give to, to what it costs them to follow. And this was cost him socially. It cost him financially to be able to help. And there wasn't any compulsion to give. There wasn't like there was a big benevolence drive to help the poor in the community. He did it out of an overflow of his heart. But it came with a tremendous cost, and it might cost us as well. We always want to give out of our wealth. But Jesus gives example after example and says, it's not about the wealth you have, but it's about the heart. Great example, Luke chapter 21. I love this passage. In Luke 21, Jesus is at the temple. He looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow is put in more than all of them. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, out of her poverty, hear that again, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It wasn't out of her surplus. It was out of a heart that was changed and one that truly trusted in God. And that's what it comes down to, by the way, for your generosity. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Now, if I'd ask you, do you trust in the Lord? You'd say, Amen. Amen. I trust. It reminds me of the guy who was a great tightrope walker. He could walk tightrope really well, so much so that he would do it between cliffs. And people would come and watch him. They were amazed at him. He would even do tricks on the wire. He would take a wheelbarrow and walk across the tightrope with a wheelbarrow. And everybody would be plodding and cheering. And he'd say, how many of you believe that I could put a person and walk across this tightrope with a person? Everybody's like, I believe. I believe. And he goes, all right, volunteers. <laughs> That's the reality. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. And that's for all of us. Who do we trust? God is constantly challenging us to trust 
in him. Reminds me of God telling the Israelites in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse was meant to, to keep everything there, to be able to give to people in time of need. You can't give if you don't have an empty storehouse. You can't help people in need if the storehouse doesn't have anything in it. That's what the gifts are for. And he says this, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Test me. Test me. Come on, test me. See if I'm good at it. See if I can provide. See if I can take care of you. You know what? I think I can handle you. I created the the heavens and the earth in six days. I got this. If you have a problem, you think you're not going to make your mortgage, your electric bill? I got this. I got this. You trust me? It comes down to finding out where do we tr- who do we trust? Who do we trust? And then these gifts were motivated out of a genuine concern for other people. They were motivated out of a genuine concern for other people. Notice there wasn't a needy person among them and that the people had sold their property and gave the money to the apostles. The funds were distributed to those who had need, meaning people were sharing what their needs were with the other people and people were sharing, hey, this person has a need now. And it wasn't as a means of social shame or, condensa- uh, or, or putting them down. Instead, it was to help them out. People weren't trying to hide that they were in need. And they weren't out, the leaders weren't out to try to take advantage of others that we know of. They were people who simply cared for one another. It wouldn't be too long that the Jerusalem church itself would be going through a hard time financially and they would need relief. Paul actually talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 7. And I want to read this for you for a moment because it's completely relevant to our discussion. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, extreme, not that they were, not that they were suffering. I mean, these guys were extremely poor, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means. But yeah, I can testify they went beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I think about that. We want to help. I'm begging you to let us help financially speaking. It's usually the other way around. Help, help, help. And these people are like, no, we want to give, we want to give, we want to help. And this, not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. First it's to God. That's what it's about. It's about where is your heart for God? Do you trust in God? That's what it's about is who do you trust? Who is your trust? In yourself and your own abilities? God can take it away like that. Like that. You can look in the Old Testament. You can see during the book of Daniel, you have a guy that's a king that's feasting and the hand shows up on the wall and begins to write, many, many, tekel, parison. And they have to bring in Daniel to interpret it. And it says that you've been weighed, you've been found wanting, and your kingdom's going to be taken from you tonight. It's gone. Everything is gone in a moment. And he's saying here, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Remember, grace is overflowing to one another. There's gift of generosity, this desire to help one another, being there for one another. But as you excel in everything, you guys are amazing. You guys are A-plus students. I mean, you guys have amazing faith, man. You guys are great speakers. Man, you finish great in Bible club every year. 
You were amazing in your knowledge and sword drills and all that fun stuff. And, and, and in earnestness and in, your, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace too. Now let me ask you, are you excelling in this act of grace? Are we excelling in this act of grace? I have to ask myself that question too. I'm one of you. It costs me to give. It costs you to give. I wonder sometimes how bills are going to be met. I have times in our budget meetings that I don't want to be there and talk about the deficit. But we continue to give. We continue to trust. And I've told my wife this. We've talked about it, that our life will have to be an example. God will have to supply in faith and speech and knowledge and all in earnestness and in our love for you that you excel in this act of grace also. I've only had one person in my entire ministry come to me begging for an opportunity to give. Her name was Jennifer Lang. It's Jennifer Scoglin now. Jennifer was one of my students when I was a young pastor in Chicago. And when she was in college, she came to me wanting to give for a project or someone need. I don't even remember what it was. And she sat across me at my desk, and, and I'm like, you can't give. You're a poor college student. <laughs> and she begged until there were almost tears in her eyes. And she says, why are you denying me the opportunity to bless someone else? And as soon as I saw the tears, I went, That's right. I'm, you're right. She gave out of her extreme poverty. She made it up in her heart to give. I long for the day when our church begs to help people. I long for that day. And I think, God willing, it will happen as we yield continually to him and seek his face in our lives. For us, it's not about bigger buildings. It's about the expansion of the kingdom of God in the hearts of people. And we always have to keep that in front of us every, every time we do because it's a, it's, a, it's a temptation for every leader and as God wills, our goal is to only expand that kingdom. If it gives us facility, great. But I'd rather see churches built in India and lives transformed there and in Saudi Arabia and, our, and people in our own community that were hungry, needed food, or needed money for rent. That's what I want to see. Comes at a cost. Comes out of a concern for others. Now, so we've seen a snapshot of a church in its infancy, and we've seen a sample of their generosity in Barnabas, but now we come to a situation of hypocrisy. A situation of hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy means saying, doing one thing and, or saying one thing and doing another. And it comes in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple. And then when we jump into this, uh, we're going to see a lot. There's a lot within this. This is a couple. Some people say that their sin is deception, and that's part of it for sure. But the greater issue was the desire to have status and honor in the community while really presenting themselves differently in order to get it. They want others to think of them as pretty special and worthy of honor and respect. I mean, we all want people to think well of us, right? You want people to think well of you? You want people to think you're great and think you're accomplished, you've made something, you're special, that you're a snowflake, unique and special like every other snowflake? Right? So we hear in our world today, everybody's unique. We want everybody to be special. It's all about identity. But the reality is, is we have to give God 
the really depth of who we are, and God will call us out when we don't. So we pick this up in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, she was complicit, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought it out to the, the, brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So here's, let's lay it out for you. Remember, this church is seeing people come forward bringing their gifts. They've seen people coming in, bringing the gifts, laying it down, and then they see Barnabas. Barnabas comes in, sells a property. Everybody knows he's a Levite, knows he's from Cyprus, so he's an out-of-town guy. And, I mean, he's a Levite, so he comes in and he lays it down, and he gets a lot of attaboys. Come up to him, man, Barnabas, way to go, brother. That's a good gift. Good job, brother. Fist bump. Let's do this. Yeah. Way to give for the kingdom of God, Barnabas. Woohoo! Let's celebrate Barnabas together. And then Ananias and Sapphira are looking at this going, hmm, I can get honor in the community. But you know what? I really want a big screen TV and new furniture. Hmm. This is what's going on, right? Let's put it in our context. They want the esteem, but they don't want to pay the price for it. They want God's approval, but they want earthly comfort. That's what's going on. And so first of all, we see though that he and his wife are talking about this. They're going through the budget going, okay, we could present the money for this much. Let's say we sold it for this. We could get by with it that for that. And then we can pocket the rest and I can get that 70 inch screen that I always wanted. And you can get that new mixer. Matter of fact, we, can maybe, we could maybe take a vacation to Damascus. Woo-hoo-hoo! Maybe we could go to the Dead Sea and float for a little bit. That'd be great. Salt there. You've been worried about the wrinkles. Come on now. Get a mud bath. It'll be great. Spa day. I mean, they're thinking of all this stuff. And they're like, okay, we can do this thing. We can do it. Remember, this is just a benevolence campaign, all right? They didn't require this. This is something voluntary. It's not that big a deal. It's just a little white lie. And matter of fact, we're given something, all right? It's pretty cool. We're given something. So let's do this. So really what you see here is a deliberate deception. This didn't happen accidentally. They didn't fall into this. They planned it out. He'd seen all the people that are coming together, and he plotted with his wife because he wanted that attention, that acclaim, and that honor. Remember, he didn't have to give it all. There was no requirement here whatsoever. There wasn't a command that was being fulfilled. This didn't come from the apostles telling people they needed to sell their stuff to give to the poor. This gift was a voluntary one, so it wasn't coerced or from guilt. It was a voluntary thing. They did it willingly, but they were using it to gain status. Now, when we entertain such thoughts in our hearts, we give the devil an opportunity to gain a foothold in our lives. That's what we see happening here. Look at verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? God supernaturally reveals to Peter that this guy's trying to pull a spiritual fast one. The devil got a hold of him, though, playing on his desire for status so that he would believe a lie. And this, but this lie wasn't just to himself. It was a lie to God. So we have here a demonic deliberation. We have a deliberate deception and a demonic deliberation. See, when we don't fight sin and we indulge it, it leaves a door or a window open for the devil to get into your life. He will talk to you, try to tear you down. And here the devil had an easy target because he didn't have to go that far to convince him of sin. Again, it wasn't like this was murder or adultery. It was a voluntary thing after all. It's only a little white lie, right? 
A voluntary thing, not that big deal, totally forgivable, no problem. I'm saved, once saved, always saved, no, condi- no condemnation in Christ after all. That's why Jesus told us to fight sin, by the way, with everything we got, because sin in all of its forms is deadly. Some of you here know and have already given the devil a foothold in your life. He is in your life. He has a hold of your heart, and he has helped make it hard. The devil led him to turn against what the Spirit of God was doing in his heart. That's why the light was toward the Holy Spirit. See, they, I believe that they had the Spirit of God, which is a sign to me that they were believers. That and the fact that the story is told in the context of all the believers, and it was only believers who were coming together bringing their gifts And I believe that their action merited God's response because they were his children and bore his name. And God reserves often his strictest and most instantaneous responses of discipline for those who claim his name. And here is something else that happens that makes me believe they were believers. They're rebuked by the Lord for lying to God's spirit and then they fall dead. Both of them three hours apart. And this isn't a romantic story, by the way. Often when we hear about a couple that dies like a few hours apart from one another, we're like, oh, that's so sweet. This one's not sweet. This is like Holy Spirit scary here. This is serious stuff here. This isn't like, whoa, isn't it romantic? I mean, you can imagine that, hearing the story. You know, Ananias and Sapphira died. They did? Oh, that's so bad. Three hours apart. Oh, that's so sweet. The Holy Spirit killed them. What? Imagine that. That's what's going on. And that's what we have. You see, what happens is, and we see this throughout the scripture, is that there is a sin that leads to death. The scripture talks about that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when we partake of communion in an unworthy manner, it says some of you are weak and ill and some have died. See, God disciplines those he loves. And when you fail to listen to God's prompting in your life, he will bring discipline. And sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's instantaneous. Sometimes it's through circumstances. And sometimes it's so severe as it merits death. So we have a deliberate deception, a demonic deliberation, and then a deadly declaration. That's what it resulted in. It's a deadly declaration. And that's what God will do. He will bring that judgment in your life because he doesn't want you to continue in sin. Sin is so serious that it merited the death of his son on the cross for you, not so that you would stay in it and try to excuse it but that you would fight it. That's why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. This is serious stuff. Don't play around. That's what caused the death of my son. I gave the whole, took the wrath of God that was due you and put it on him. Why do you insist on trying to impugn my name? I bought you with a price. Then why do you continue on in disobedience? Why do you play with it as if it's nothing? Don't you understand the depth of my love and what the sacrifice of my son meant for you? That's what it's about. See, it results in a deadly declaration. God will not share his glory with another. God will only allow his name to be impugned for so long. And then he will intercede. We have to understand that we are dealing with the God of the universe here. We have to have a healthy fear of God. And when we don't have a healthy fear of God, the, the consequences are disastrous. And here's what I mean by that. If you're an electrician, anyone that's ever tried to change an outlet, and you've worked with electricity before, electricians have to possess what we call healthy fear. Healthy fear. Because as soon as you start, stop fearing the electricity, what happens? You get stupid. And then you could possibly die. You're dealing with the God of the universe. You're not talking about a 110 outlet. Oh, a little fear. 220. I mean, when you get 220, now you're like, okay, this is serious. Now, imagine you're talking like nuclear power. 
And God is infinitely powerful, more powerful than that. I mean, it's deadly declaration that we have here. So what do we learn from that? What, what is God showing us and trying to, to, to do? Because they, they're fall dead, three hours apart, because they decided to lie to the Holy Spirit. Well, then we have to heed a, a serious call to authenticity. A serious call to authenticity. This should scare us straight. These were people who are participating in a benevolence program and are killed for not being honest about what they are doing. Think about that. It's a, bene- a voluntary benevolence program. And they're struck dead. If you want to follow Jesus, then you have to drop the push for status in the community and be authentic in your pursuit of his name. He is not about the amount of money you give. That much can be clearly seen here. He wanted their heart and wanted to be their honor, not the means to get it. Instead, they are left in this story as a shameful reminder for each one of us so that we should take stock of ourselves. Now, if we're to be authentic, then it needs three things. First of all, you gotta check your motives. What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing? If you think God coming after a couple who is being voluntary generous is bad, then what does that mean to us who continue to sin without any thought of God whatsoever and yet claim to be a follower of him? Do you think God still acts like that? I do. The difference is, and why we don't know about it, is that here we have access to the divine narrator to tell us what happened. Someone could die right beside us, and it could be for that exact reason, but we don't know because we don't have access to the divine narrator's voice in that way. But I think God still does that. You might hear it as a heart attack. You might hear it as cancer. It might be a car accident. and be like, oh, that's tragic. It's God interceding. Now, he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he's long-suffering because he wants people to come to repentance, but he does do that. Check our motives. Secondly, we have to challenge our comforts. And what do I mean by that? This couple wanted a claim, but they wanted to keep a portion of the money back. Why? Because they wanted security and earthly comforts. They put their comfort over Christ so much they were willing to use Christ to get their comforts. That's a temptation for each one of us, but we have to put it to death. We are consumed with our stuff, our wants, desires, and comforts that we've lost a kingdom mindset. Where are those who are willing to sell their stuff to give so that others can be helped? I see people spend all this money on their vacations, cars, TVs, clothes, toys, and give to God nothing. Nothing. They want heaven, but aren't willing to give a penny to the one who gave them eternal salvation, who saved them from the very wrath of God. They have no idea what they have been given and what they've been saved from. I want to end this time with a little story about a guy named Nabal. Anybody know the story of Nabal? His name means fool. He's in 1 Samuel chapter 25. He's married to this woman named Abigail. He's a wealthy farmer. And he uh, was, had a farm that was in proximity to where David was camped out. And David and his men, his army. And his men were actually protecting some of Nabal's flocks and sheep, making sure that nothing happened to them, but ask for nothing in return. But it came to a point in time that David's men were in need. He needed some food. And they said, well, Nabal's nearby. They said, let's go ask him. We've helped him. He should be able to help us out, just as a token of appreciation. So they show up, and they go to Nabal, and they said, hey, you know, you know we've been around you. We've helped you out with that. Can we get a little food? And the guy goes, who's David? It's a tremendous insult. This is a massive slap in the face. This is a, a massive uh, dishonor that is being shown to him. David, here's the report. He tells his men, load up. It's on. Now, seriously, he's, it's, it's, it's gung-ho time now. He's ready to go. 
And so they, they, they army takes off, but Nabal's wife, Abigail, heard this whole thing, and she knows her husband's an idiot, because his name's Fool, and she even says it to David. She, actually, she loads up this donkey, puts all this food on it, and heads off David's army right before they get to destroy them. And as she, she gets there, she bows down, gets off the donkey, bows down, and she goes, David, my lord, I am Nabal's wife. Please forgive my husband, because he is an idiot. Basically, that's what she said. He's his Nabal. It's true of his name. He's a fool. It's basically saying, in our terminology, he's an idiot. And he did something stupid, and he insulted you, and you are the king. You are the rightful ruler. You have done all these things, and we want to acknowledge that before you right now. Please have mercy on us and don't destroy us. And David agrees to stop because of her action. So she goes back home, and you can imagine the conversation that she's going to have with Nabal after this. Can you imagine that? I mean, you've ever had your husband do something stupid and you just couldn't wait to get home to tell him that he was being stupid, right? And so she gets home, but of course, he's lit. Meaning he's, it, I mean, it's, he's been drinking, having a good time. He's partying it up. He, so he passes out. He's so drunk. So she realizes the conversation's pointless at this time. So she waits for him to sober up in the morning. He wakes up, and this is the text that we read. It says, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, in other words, he's sober, his wife told him these things. She goes, you idiot. This is what happened. That army was about to destroy you because of how stupid you were. And I interceded. Then it says, his heart died within him and he became as stone. It was like shock to realize what he had just been saved from, but he couldn't take it. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. He realized what he had just narrowly avoided. If you knew what eternity will be like for those who don't have Jesus and what you've been saved from, you would vomit. To realize what his sacrifice has meant for you would overwhelm you. You couldn't even begin to fathom what his death meant and what he saved you from. We, we can't even find words to describe what hell will be like. We use terms like fire and burning and gnashing of teeth and darkness. And they don't even begin to, to, to come close to describe what the reality of hell is. Separation from God forever. I mean, it's an incredible, unfathomable thought. We have to understand what God has saved us from and we fail to remember that what we've delivered from and we need to change our ways if we want to live a life that is blessed and one which we don't experience God's discipline. What do you need to change right now in your approach to God? Where have you been playing games and trying to make yourself look better than you are? Have you held on to your comforts? Repent. Don't hold on to your sin. God will intervene in your life if you insist on continuing in it. Sin is serious and his response is severe. I had communion moved to the end of the service today because I want it to be a response to God. This is a time where we ask God to examine our hearts. And I don't come at you trying to, to, to be heavy-handed. I come at you as someone who loves you, and I don't want you to stay in your sin. I come at someone pleading with you, don't continue on because you don't realize the path that you're going on. Paul, when he talks about communion, he wants us to come face-to-face -face with the risen Savior. And that's why he says, examine yourself. This past summer in our house, I saw one of my daughters do this, and then this, and I went, hmm. You know what that meant? You have a parent, you have a bring them a small, your child, you know what that means? Lice. 
So we had lice in our house there for a little bit. And my, my wife went into lice mode. I mean, it was like full alert, three in the morning sleeping. She's got triple bags under her eyes. She's going through sheets. She's got one of those little, little uh, combs that are like knits pulling it out of the hair. You know what I'm talking about. You hate it, right? right? That's how we're to examine our sin. Because it will pass on to other people. It's contagious. It's dirty. So we have to let the Holy Spirit take that, get those nits out. Take those combs and remove that sin from our hearts and minds. That's why when we come before in communion, we lay ourselves down before God. And we say, God, by your spirit, begin to cleanse me. Now, as we get ready to observe communion, I want to I put some restrictions. I want to put some instructions and warnings for you. This is for those who know Jesus. If you're here today and you're investigating Jesus, I am so glad you're here. But don't take this. Paul says that this is for those who trusted in Jesus and have shown it and I, by stepping into the waters of baptism, which have declared their allegiance with him. So I invite you to partake if you've done that, if you've stepped in and are following him and, and you know him. But it's also for those who are seeking to follow him. And if you know that you have a sin in your life that you were unrepentant of, if you partake of this and you're holding on to that sin, you're inviting God's judgment in your life. Paul's pretty clear on that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, let a person examine himself then. Actually, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and uh, body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So if you're a person here today and you know you're holding on to your sin and you're not repentant of it, don't take it. But if you're here and you know in the depth of your heart you might have sinned right before you came in and in the depth of your being you are broken, partake. Because our God is a merciful God. That's an amen. That's amen worthy. Our God is a merciful God. He's a forgiving God. He's a God of second chances. He's a God that gave his son for you so that you could have new life in him. That no matter what you have done, no matter what your background is, that he will forgive, that his death was sufficient to pay for your sin once and for all, and he gives you new life. But as we are bearers of this new life, we have to learn to walk worthy of it and not continuing in sin, but seeking to take up our cross daily, dying to sin that the life of Christ might be manifest in us and the kingdom of God might be contagious and pass on to other people. So as we partake of this, I'm going to ask you to do business with God. That you take this time to ask God to, to take that comb of his spirit as you take the word and you comb it over to your heart. And you say, where's that sin? Bring it to the surface that I might repent of it and turn from it. Let's pray and ask God to bless our communion time together. Oh Lord, our God, we come into your presence boldly by the name of Jesus, celebrating what he has done on the cross for our sins knowing that it cost the Son of God his life to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and then rose again to show that we are victorious by our faith in him. And Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they might claim the truth of your word that says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And Lord, for those who are repentant in the depth of your being because they know that they have not lived and been representatives of your word, I pray that you might forgive them. And I pray, Lord, that you speak to us in our time today. Glorify your name and let each one examine themselves and do business with you that they might be restored into fellowship and experience the reality of the forgiveness that is ours through Christ. 
be with us. In Jesus' name.